0: It's May 1st, 2019. This is Acacia Thompson for Brooklyn Public Library's Greenpoint Oral History Project for Our Streets, Our Stories. I'm here today at the Central Library with Jimmy Pinn, Plant Superintendent of the Newtown Creek Wastewater Treatment Facility from... From 1992 until July 17th of 2014. 22 years. Thanks for being here, Jimmy. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. I love to tell the story. So, In order for me to tell the story about Greenpoint, I want to tell you a little bit about myself and how I got into wastewater treatment. So let's start at the beginning. I'm the oldest of nine children. I live in Windsor Terrace Park Slope neighborhood. I'm on the same block I was born on. I'm gonna be 65 next year, next week. So um, my mom always told us that we had to get civil service jobs because my father was a civil servant and they felt that the security and the constant paycheck was a way to go so i was fortunate enough that i was had a good grammar school education from holy name grammar school catholic school and i was accepted to brooklyn tech and i took a mechanical engineering course in brooklyn tech and graduated in 1972. the most amazing education i talk about it all the time to whomever wants to send their children to those three specialized schools i hope they stay the same i know there's a lot of talk about changing that entrance exam but it really needs to you really need to have a basis before you go there otherwise you're going to fall behind it's a lot of hard work By graduating Brooklyn Tech, um, my immediate concern was to get that civil service job. And I had taken many, many civil service jobs, police, fire, traffic device maintainer, in my junior and senior year of high school. One of the jobs that I applied for and took and passed the exam was sewage treatment worker. That ultimately led me to the DEP. But at the time of graduation, I had not gotten called. So I went out after graduation and I applied to the New York Telephone Company Brooklyn Union Gas, which is now Keyspan, and to Consolidated Edison Con Ed. I got immediately hired by Con Ed because of my mechanical background in Brooklyn Tech, and I was placed in the Ravenswood Power plant in Queens, and I was working on Big Alice. At the time, it was the largest turbine in New York City, producing 1 million megawatts of power. And I was learning with skilled mechanics on how you repair, troubleshoot, and work with a turbine. One year during that period of time, which was a lovely experience, I really enjoyed my time at Con Ed, I received notice that I was being hired as a sewage treatment worker. That was May 23rd of 1973, uh, and I was sad that I left Con Edison, but just to give you a little incentive of why I left, I was making $2.98 an hour, which is $119.20 a week with Con Edison, and the sewage treatment worker's job was $246.40 a week. So I was doubling my salary. It was an easy choice. So the day that I got hired, I arrived at the Owl's Head wastewater treatment plant in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. I was an entry level person, sewage treatment worker. And the day before, the a couple of days before, I was using a micrometer, measuring bearings and all kinds of sensitive instruments. And then the day I showed up at the uh, Owl's Head plant, I was in the screenings chamber, raking debris coming in from the sewer, toilet paper, and all kinds of material and I said, what did I do? What did I do here? But soon after, I learned to love that job too. Uh, My mechanical skills that I had from both Brooklyn Tech and also from Con Edison uh, immediately got me into the maintenance side of the wastewater treatment business and I started both the maintenance and the operation. So I had five promotions during my time through the DEP. So it's pretty easy, you take a test, you get promoted, you take a test, you get promoted. There's a rule called the Peter Principle, that ultimately everybody rises to their level of incompetence. That never happened to me, by the way. But uh, I was able to take four civil service promotions during that period of time. And I went from sewage treatment worker to what we called uh, foreman. We're not allowed to use that term anymore, right? We have to be more gender neutral. And then after that foreman position, I became a watch engineer. I studied electrical engineering over at the Staten Island Community College and I passed the electrical engineers test. So I became a, a watch engineer and what that entails is we manufacture electricity using the methane gas, which is a byproduct of the wastewater treatment process, we'll get into that later, and we make electricity with diesel engines with that methane gas. So being the watch engineer, you're in charge of all the electrical power distribution and um, consumption. And then a year after I was a watch engineer, uh, I took another promotion test and I became a deputy plant superintendent. I didn't think I knew enough about being a watch engineer and all of a sudden they're promoting me to another level. I was the deputy plant superintendent at the Owl's Head facility. And Owl's Head at that time was going under a massive construction project. This was 1983 and we had a $400 million construction contract that was starting. And I thought, wow, here it is. This is the stuff that I love. So we got through nine years of that, and the plant was about halfway done. And all of a sudden, there was an opening at the Newtown Creek Wastewater Treatment Plant. The former superintendent, um, Michaelis, Elmer Michaelis, was going to retire. So in August 18th of 1992, they transferred me over to Newtown Creek to work alongside Elmer for the next three months, because he ultimately retired on December 23rd, 1992 and I took over the next day. And that was my start of operating the Newtown Creek facility. So let me tell you a little bit about Newtown Creek before I go into the construction that took place. Newtown Creek was built in 1967. It opened in 1967. It was built in the early 1960s, three, four, up to 1967. At the time, it was the 12th of the, of the, uh, the 12th plans in the New York City system. Presently, we have 14 plants. Since that time, we built the Red Hook plant in 1985, and the North River plant went into operation in 1986. So the system presently has 14 wastewater treatment plants. But at the time, it was only the 12, and I had become this superintendent. So in 1967, Newtown Creek was the state of the art. It was a plant that was meant to do 65% removal Of the wastewater composition that was coming in. So, for instance, if you had, let's say, 100 pounds of waste that was coming in with all the water, we were required to take 65 pounds of that waste out, and the plant could easily do that. And then the other 35 pounds went into the receiving water. I know it sounds bad, but you have to remember, this was 1967, and EPA was not formed by Congress until 1970. And then the Clean Water Act that ultimately gave all the United States its clean waters that we have now, was not promulgated until 1972. And in 1972, Newtown Creek was only five years old. Now, under the law, we had to go to an 85% removal, and we had 11 other plants in the system, and the oldest plant was the Coney Island plant that had been around since when we started the Brooklyn Bridge and the Statue of Liberty. It was the first treatment plant in the system, and it had very preliminary um, settlement. What happened, we would screen the material coming in, and we would add alum in order to settle out whatever could settle, and then we added chlorine gas to inject into the water, and those waters were going into the Coney Island beaches, and you have to remember the Coney Island beaches and the Coney Island boardwalk was the Disney World of its time. It was known for Steeplechase and Luna Park, and during the 18 and early 1900s, a million visitors a day would be on the beaches and the boardwalk of of Coney Island in its heyday. So in order to protect those waters, the city put into service its first treatment plant, the Coney Island plant, which is actually on Knapp Street in Brooklyn. It's actually in the Sheepshead Bay section of Brooklyn, but it services the drainage area and it kept the waters around the Coney Island beach as clean as possible for its time. So getting back to Newtown Creek. So when I got there, the plant was already about almost 20 years old. But during the time when we had to decide which plants were going to get the benefit of the monies that the federal government was giving us, 75 percent during the Clean Water Act's um, initiation, the plant The city decided to do nine of the 11 plants completely renovating it because of the money that we were getting from the federal government, and the state was putting in 12.5%. So we had 75% from this federal, 12.5% from the state. It was cheap cheap for the city to add the other 12.5%, and they got nine brand-new renovated plants. Now, at the time, the two plants that were left out were the Coney Island plant and the Owl's Head plant. The two that I mentioned earlier. So in the 80s, 1983, both of those plants went under renovation and they finished up in the early 90s, maybe 94, 95. Both of those plants had gotten themselves to 85% removal. So here we are. There are 11 plants meeting 85% removal and I'm operating the Newtown Creek plant, 1992, still at 65% removal. So. What happens? Well, the federal government sued us and they said we're in violation of the Clean Water Act and you have to do something. The city at the time applied for a waiver and said, look, we're discharging into the East River. It has a very big current. The waters are 65% clean. It doesn't really make that much difference. Can we get away with the 85? And years went back and forth in the courts and finally EPA and the courts decided, no, you must renovate and bring the plant up to 85% removal. So when I had just gotten there, they were starting what they refer as a facility plan. It's one of the first steps in figuring out what has to be done by the engineers in order to renovate a facility. So now we have a little backstory. Remember I told you that the the North River plant was going in in uh, 1986? Well, when it started, it had a new unique type of treatment called deep aeration tanks. Aeration tanks around the system are normally 15 feet deep But because of size constraints, remember Newtown Creek, I mean, excuse me, remember that the North River plant was built completely on the water in Harlem on the Hudson River, about 125th Street to 145th Street. And that plant had to be compact. So in order to save size, they made the aeration tanks 30 feet deep, doubling the size. And when those tanks went into service, You're not going to believe this, but the microorganisms that are active in the aeration tank that make the process work, and I'll tell you about that later, they got the bends just like divers get the bends because of the deep tanks. And we were failing, and the process was failing. So we had a lot of engineers, and we actually had people from Japan who had a similar, similar experience. They said their deep tanks didn't work either. But luckily, we figured it out. Now, in order for an aeration tank to work, it's kind of like your fish tank. So there's a diffuser system that pumps air in, that undergravel filter you put down first, and you have those two air stones in each corner of the tank. You fill the gravel, you put the water, you put the fish in, and you have an air pump that's pumping the air in. That's exactly the same process in an aeration tank. We add air into the water, and the air makes the microbes live, eat, be active, and they eat the waste product. Now by having deep tanks and having the air level only at the very bottom of the 30 foot was causing the upper level of bacteria to starve of oxygen. So what we ultimately did to make it work is we put a supplemental layer of air halfway up. So we had a diffuser grid, that's the thing that disperses the air at at the bottom of the tank, and halfway up at the 15 foot mark we put another set of grids. So air was going in at two elevations and therefore the microbes worked and the plant was a success. But until we figured that out, our facility plant was using the same design and the state rejected it. They said, no, you can't make it work at North River. We're not gonna allow you to do it at Newtown Creek. So I guess to my blessing, we had to start a brand new facility plant. And the reason it's important for the story is that I'm gonna tell you the end point now. I was there from the first day of the facility plant until the last day of construction when the plant was finished, and that was over a 22-year period at a cost of $5.2 billion. And um, I have a lot to tell you, and it involves both the community, the operation, the construction, and a lot of pretty amazing things that happened with Valentine's Day and movies. So let's go through the story. So as the facility plan was being developed, as the operator, the chief operator, I was involved Jimmy, what do you want on the plant, they would say. I said, I want it simple, I want it maintainable, I want it reliable. Let's not go fancy. I know the computer industry was in its, in its heyday there, and everybody was talking about computer-driven this and computer-driven that, and we've had some, some luck and not a lot of luck with computers in the wastewater. They're not robust enough at the time to work in that kind of an atmosphere. So we, I tried to get a balance between the new technology and the old reliable, what I call Egyptian technology, the stuff from hundreds of years that just work very reliable. And um, I had a good voice and a lot of people listened. So we got a very, very good facility plan. It met all the requirements of both the state and the federal government. But it was taking a long time. Remember, we tried to get a lawsuit to stop us from having to build it. We wanted to get a waiver. So the state was getting annoyed and EPA filed a lawsuit against us. We lost in court and the judge ordered to go under a consent decree. A consent decree is a court order that mandates a schedule that must be maintained. And not only does it have to be maintained, they they appointed a uh, a court officer called a judicial referee, and his name was Bob Schaff, and he came from Chagrin Falls, Iowa, and he was a wonderful, wonderful man. He was an ex-Navy pilot, and he was an engineer, and he had a reasonable set of skills that allowed us to both be the disciplinarian and push us forward when the schedule was falling behind, but also understand what was necessary to get a operating plan under construction. So he, he kept the balance. So as we finalized the contract drawings and we set out for the first amount of construction, here we are up to 1998. So I got there in 92, in 1998, we're starting to put the shovel in the ground. That that six years took a long time to get the facility plan and the thousands and thousands of documents. We wound up in the end with 22 major contracts, each one of them having sets of drawings and specifications. The drawings per contract ranged approximately 800 pages. So you can just imagine the amount of work, 800 times 22 contracts, and thick telephone book sizes of specifications about how the materials had to be built, how the equipment had to operate. And um, I, you know, I'm not trying to brag, but I read every page and I knew every, every page of the document because as the operator, one of the questions that came up is how did the plant operate and still be under construction? Well, that's the challenge. And to the, um, to the benefit of, of my employees, the people that worked with me every day, We managed to continually operate. Now, normally, when you're doing a construction project like that, EPA and the state, DEC, give you a little leeway. They would lessen the treatment that you had to do. And remember, I stated, we were doing 65% removal. At that time, the state was not satisfied. So they made us go to 75% removal with the old existing plant as we're tearing it apart. I said, wow, now you're adding a real challenge. So what we did in, doing, in order to get that extra 10% removal is we add chemical treatment. Naturally, the plants actually operate just like your stomach, and the biology inside of your belly is the same biology I use inside of the aeration tanks, but it wasn't good enough because we didn't have enough of those tanks. So we had to add chemicals, and chemicals helped settle and enhance the process to get to that 75%. So, as we were going along, proceeding with the construction, we had these chemicals and we were meeting our permit. So, let's just stop a little bit and let me go back and tell you why the community got so involved with Newtown Creek. As I said, it was operating since 1967, it was state of the art, but it had no odor control systems whatsoever. All of the processes were open to the air. And even though the result of the water going out into the receiving waters, the East River, was fairly clean compared to what came in. It was a very odorous process to have this in your neighborhood. Now, at the time, there was a fat rendering place. When the butcher finishes all the tailings and all the, the scraps that he used after he butchers the cows and serves the meat to the public, there's a collection company that comes around and takes all that fat. All of that fat was rendered down in a Greenpoint factory called Van Einstein. And Van Einstein was well known, as you went over the old Kosciuszko Bridge, you knew you were coming into Greenpoint because the odor of the melting down, the rendering of this fat from the butcher shops was absolutely deplorable. So eventually, they moved to the Carolinas. They moved their whole operation to the Carolinas. And lo and behold, when the people stopped smelling Van Einstein, the fat renderer, they started to smell Newtown Creek, the treatment plant. And boy, did my phone start to ring. Because that transition happened just about the time that I got to Newtown Creek. So the plant smelled, I knew it. There was not much we could do about it. We were in the early stages of the facility plan. There was a a group of folks there, the Newtown Creek Alliance, that was heavily involved in all things environmental. Let me give you a little history of what was going on at Greenpoint at the time. Greenpoint was a very, very industrial, commercial area. There were some residences, mostly Greenpoint immigrants that had come from Poland and settled. It also had a very large Irish contingent that was there from the early 1940s, 50s, and they were still around. Good, hardworking people that actually sometimes didn't have to go too far to get to their jobs because the jobs in the neighborhood were close by. But the odor was tremendous. And these people had enough, and they started organizing. Besides the plant having an odor, the BQE was under disrepair, the Brooklyn-Queens Expressway, which basically cuts Greenpoint in half from, from the Italian section to the Greenpoint section, to the uh, to the Polish section, excuse me. And the BQE had to have this major operation, so traffic was diverted, the plant smelled, and there was one more thing going on. They decided to paint the Williamsburg Bridge and it was full of lead paint. So they had to abate the lead paint. Now I think you know that every community has a community board and community board have chairs of different committees and New York City's community board number one in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, which is the one that covered Greenpoint and that I went to 22 years worth of monthly meetings, um, had an environmental chair and that environmental chair was inundated. The odor from the plant, the BQE renovation, and then, of course, the lead abatement coming from the Williamsburg Bridge, all taking place at the same time. At the town, ta- at the time, the council member realized that we need to have a subcommittee that would help the environmental chair manage this. And that's how the NICMIC, the Newtown Creek Modern T- Committee, was formed. It was formed by a city council resolution in which the city council representative and co-chairs Irene Clementowitz, that you may have heard her name, Irene is still around, a wonderful le- woman, and Christine Hollowitz. And those two ladies were the co chairs, and the other half of the chair was the city council president. We had gone through three or four of them during the period of time of the construction. But uh, the co chair ladies are the, were the main folks. So I got my first introduction to the Nick Mick Committee when I went to the swinging 60s. Uh, center in Greenpoint, and that's where we held one of the first sets of community board meetings where I was introduced to the public as the new representative of the Newtown Creek treatment plant. And at the time, I'll tell you this story, it's a little funny, they had a Polish interpreter because I was, you know, telling my story about what our plans were and how we were going to renovate the plant, so they had a Polish interpreter. And as I'm speaking to the audience and giving them my thoughts on how we're going to proceed with this very long project that's going to bring them ultimate relief, there was an old Polish woman in the first row, and as I was talking, she was yelling at me. She was moving her hand and she was yelling, and she was speaking in Polish. And I don't mean to be rude, but I'm going to say she was yeah 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 gówna yeah 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 gówna gówna. So at the end of the at the end of my spiel, and we were. They had told the story in both English and Polish. I asked the interpreter, I said, that woman in the front was yelling the whole time. I said, what is this guvna, guvna? And she says, Jimmy, that means shit. I said, oh my God. She said, "Yep, she's very upset because what she was saying in Polish was the plant smells like shit. I apologize for the word, but you have to understand the emotion at the time. I said, okay, I get it. The people are upset. I live in Brooklyn. I don't want to offend anybody. We're going to do this right. So my relationship with the Nick committee started. It was a wonderful relationship. I got to know every single person, their names, their wives, their daughters, their husbands, their grandkids. They got to know my family. I decided that from the first day, and I'm getting emotional. I apologize. From the first day, I was never going to lie to them. I was going to be transparent. And they were going to know everything that went on in this facility So together, we would see the progress and hopefully have a successful job. And it happened. That's the way it happened. So um, I'm emotional because uh, I spent so many years there and had so many friends. Those people, a lot of them passed away. That um, they're great memories and uh, very proud of the success. So um, I'm just going to take a moment and we'll go back. Okay, so now it begins. So after the first community board, we said we're gonna involve these people to the chagrin of some of my DEP superiors, you know, but I said, look, it's not gonna work unless we have a partnership. So the operators have to contribute, the designers have to contribute, and the community has to contribute, and we have to all work together. And actually, it was a winning formula. Years later, many, many, many people still talk about it today, that the way that we handle it, the approach from the beginning was the right formula. So I'm very proud. So, Months and months and months and years of monthly community board meetings at Newtown Creek were going on. We brought the designers in. We showed renderings. We talked about the technology. We talked how we in, we looked worldwide for new technologies that could fit. Newtown Creek was a small 36-acre parcel of land, and it wasn't going to work unless we got adjoining properties. So what happened, we were fortunate enough that Exxon and Mobil were our neighbors, and Exxon and Mobil had large refinery capacity at those facilities and people in Greenpoint would remember the very large white tanks that were on both sides of the street on Greenpoint and uh, over by um, uh, just in front of the Greenpoint Avenue bridge there was another row of them. And through negotiations the city was able to purchase that property and we expanded the plant conjointly we were adjoining those properties and we wound up with 53 acres So now we had a large facility that we think we could build what was necessary. But it still wasn't going to be a typical plant. And there was a lot of worry about that. Now, typically, I'm going to go into the wastewater treatment. I'm going to tell you that now. You need to hear it because it's going to explain why we did what we did ultimately at Newtown Creek. (laughs) Typical New York City and nationwide and even worldwide, wastewater treatment plants are a five-step process. Very simple. Wastewater comes in from the surrounding areas, from the homes and businesses. And in some cases, like New York, it's called a combined sewer. They're also attached to the catch basins at the corner. So when it rains, the streets and the gutters fill up with water, and the water conveys down into the catch basin, and the catch basin goes to the treatment plants. You can imagine in a city like New York that's completely paved, how much extra water can occur. Just to talk about it in times so you can get some sense. Newtown Creek was uh, 25 square miles of New York City was the Newtown Creek drainage area. And one eighth of an inch of rain, one eighth of an inch, look at it on a ruler, it's so tiny, is is, is, is an extra 63 million gallons of rain. So if you had a half inch of rain or a one inch rainstorm, you can imagine how each of the drainage areas in New York City were impacted by that water and that water would be going for the most part to the treatment plant. So once we started to think about how the treatment had to go, and I'm going to explain it, we were able to decide how the ultimate plant design was going to be was going to be built. So in wastewater treatment, the first thing that happens is that the wastewater enters into the plant and it's screened. You have to remember that toilet paper for the most part, and, and you know, your bowel movement and your urine that comes into the treatment is most of what happens when it comes in from the city sewer system. You know, you have dishwater, you take a shower, you have the washing machine water. And that's basically it. That's what happens. 99% of the water that enters into the treatment plant is clean water. But it's used to convey the liquids from the toilet and your sink. Very small percentage. I'll explain it more later. So the problem is, is that the catch basins on the street can pick up a lot of litter. And that's where the heavy debris comes from. We're a littered society and we throw cigarette butts and coffee cups and anything we want because, you know, we're very rude and we allow that material to go on the street and then it goes into the catch basin and when the drain when the rain occurs that material flushes into the treatment plant. So anyway, the first thing we do is we screen the flow. Now, once we screen the flow, you have to realize that all of the flow got to the treatment plants on their own inertia, which means that the pipes in the street are pitched and that pitching allows the water to leave your toilet, leave your home, go into the street, and connect to the first sewer. That sewer goes down a few blocks, connects to a larger sewer. That sewer goes down a few blocks and connects to a larger sewer. So on and so forth. And all by gravity, all by pitch. So when it gets to the treatment plant, most cases it's 75 to 100 feet underground. Now you say to yourself, well, i got to pump that sewage up. So I screen it to get rid of all of the debris. I allow the sewage itself, the fecal matter, the toilet paper is already dissolved. You don't realize it, but it's dissolved. And of course, the urine stream and any chemicals, household chemicals, some industrial chemicals, all that comes through. But it enters into what we call a wet well. And the wet well is where we store the water for a short period of time while we pump it up. Once we pump it up, we've, we've infused the water with enough energy because we've pumped it to the highest part of the plant, that from that point on, it goes through the various treatment on its own inertia, and then still has enough energy left to go out into the East River or the outfall to return back to the receiving waters. So you go from the screens to the pumping station, from the pumping station to the primary settling tanks. The primary settling tanks take out the grit and the silt in a combined sewer system. If you sweep your street and you sweep your curb, you notice there's always a pan a dustpan full of silt or dirt where it's always around us so that material gets flushed into the city system every time it rains so the primary tanks settle out what we refer to as inorganic material the sand and the silt the rest of the sewage the organics pass through so the first step then is primary treatment settling the next thing we do is we add the wastewater into the aeration tanks Now a little bit of what I described before about the fish tank, I'm going to reiterate. So in the aeration tank, we pump in compressed air. The air that we breathe contains 21% oxygen and the microorganisms from our belly that came out in our waste when we went to the toilet is what's actually in the solid material that we wasted out of our bodies. There are billions of microorganisms. You know what's going on today. Probiotics, eat the yogurt, You want to make sure that the the bacteria in your stomach is healthy bacteria. Well, that's very important because after you use it to digest your food as much as possible, we use it in the treatment plant to continue the process. That's the little known fact that most people don't understand, that we're replicating your stomach while going through the treatment process. So in the aeration tank, your waste that is carrying all those healthy, helpful bacteria need nourishment they need to continue eating, which they do, but they also need oxygen, like us, to breathe. So by pumping the oxygen into the aeration tank, like a fish tank, we are propagating microorganisms at a very young age, and we allow them to grow. They morph into different life ages. So, if you remember, when I was a kid, there was a show called Zachary, and he talked about the amoeba, and amoebas, are, are an, one of the most wonderful types of microorganisms that, that are in your body in an infant style stage and then we grow them into regular Omiva. We have names for the microorganisms. We have stalk cilia, we have vermicelli, sounds like a fine wine or maybe an Italian dinner, but these are recognized known uh, microorganisms that are very helpful in the wastewater business. So by nurturing, growing and propagating those, we actually dissolve the food that your body didn't completely consume in the aeration tank. Now, food doesn't really want to settle. It's kind of buoyant. I'm gonna tell you the story. Remember those stupid high school movies where everybody's in the to, uh, in the pool and somebody throws a Tootsie Roll in. They're trying to show that somebody might have pooped in the, in the pool. And the Tootsie Roll floats. Well, actually, fecal matter floats too. So if we didn't dissolve it and we didn't get it, like we say, macerated, and become one with the water, and then the microorganisms start to chew it, like Pac-Men, they start to eat and consume it. What happens, these microorganisms get fat, they get heavy, they get dense. So after the aeration tank, which usually lasts four hours, then we allow the water to settle in the final settling tank, and those heavy, dense microorganisms that are eating their fill now settle to the bottom, we scrape them, and We a different process with those, and then that clean water goes for one final step. It goes for disinfection, where we add a little bit of sodium hypochloride, it's about twice as strong as the household bleach that you use, and adding that bleach product into the water removes any of the microorganisms that actually kills them that might have slipped by, that might have not eaten enough and settled out. We don't want them going into the receiving water, so we, we destroy them by adding the chlorine and we only add enough chlorine to do the job. We don't overchlorinate because a lot of folks are worried about chlorine. So now in the modern day, after the chlorine process just before the water leaves the plant and goes in what we call the outfall, which is the pipe that leads to the river or the stream or the ocean, we dechlorinate. We add a chemical called sodium bisulfite, and that sodium bisulfite neutralizes the chlorine bleach instantly. So therefore, there is no chlorine at all going in the treated wastewater. And the wastewaters nowadays around New York City are 93% clean. We only have to do to 85% by federal law. But on average, the 14 plants clean the water to 93%. And if I showed you a glass of it compared to a glass of drinking water, you wouldn't know the difference. And I know you're not going to believe me, but that's the truth. Even though there's 7% of solids in there, they're so microscopic that you can't, even, you can't even see them. Now, this is not drinkable water. New York City doesn't have to treat their water for drinkable. New York City discharges into Jamaica Bay, the East River, the Hudson River, the Atlantic Ocean, the Harlem River. Those rivers are fishable, swimmable. So we only have to bring the treatment to 85% because the, we're, we're putting back water that's almost cleaner than the water that it is. So you have to realize that we're doing an excellent job. And in the 40 plus years that I've been doing it, and I think a lot of people that are maybe in their 60s and 70s that are hearing this, would say, yes, I remember when the water was dirty. I remember going to the beaches when I was a kid. And you could see a lot of that flotsam and jetsam and maybe fecal matter in the water. Those days are basically gone because of the improved treatment that's taken place over the past 50 years in New York City. So that's the treatment process. Now we're gonna go back to what we did at Newtown Creek. So Newtown Creek had 53 acres to start planning how they were gonna lay things out. And we had to realize that volumes of tankage take up the biggest space. So if we had to have primary tanks, followed by aeration tanks, followed by final settling tanks, followed by chlorine contact tanks, and then we had to have a whole area over there for the solids handling that I talked about, the microorganisms that settled out in the final tank are scraped and collected, and we put them in digesters. And those of you that know the Greenpoint area and have seen the iconic digester eggs with the walkway, maybe you've been on one of them, the tours that I might have given. Those digesters are where the processed material that's settled out is further treated. And there's a real benefit for us treating those sludge, as we refer to it, the solids that have settled in the final settling tank that came out of your bodies, that the microorganism further ate and got fat and settled. Well, that sludge goes in these digesters. And here we are back to talking about the human anatomy. The digester is exactly, 100% exactly like your stomach. So we feed the digester three times a day. That's the way we like to be fed. We keep the digesters at 98 degrees. That's your body temperature. And we mix the digesters thoroughly. Kind of like what happens and do you know that your, your body has a little bit of acid? You know, you've heard of reflex, acid reflex. Well, the digesters develop a little bit of acid too. It's part of the digestion process that breaks it down. And I'm going to say something a little rude to you too. Every once in a while, some of us had gas. Maybe you burp it or maybe you pass it out in, in the form of a, you know, a fart. I hate to say it, but a fart. But what that is, is methane gas. It's the same methane gas that the digesters produce, in a way, the same way your stomach produces. So we further break down the compounds that have been collected, and we make natural gas, methane gas. And that gas is used in most of the plants to either run their boiler system, as you would house gas to run your stove or your boiler, or to generate electricity. because we have generators that work off of the methane gas that make electricity. So it's an unbelievable full circle. And this idea, this premise, has been around since the early 1900s. So I know there's a lot about the Green New Deal and trying to be energy efficient, but the waste treatment plants have been very, very efficient in taking in waste, converting it to energy, and using that energy to run the process, to continue the process. So there's a lot to be said about the engineers from the early 1900s, and I was very, very proud to be part of that system. So now, we have all these components we have to lay out. I I did a little side talk about the digesters, but you need a lot of room for digesters, about four and a half acres, by the way. So when we figured out what we needed in the 53 acres, we had to come up with some unique treatment processes. So we decided not to put in primary tanks. Wow, this was a real split between the engineers. A lot of people doubted that the facility could operate without a primary tank. But we looked at some old technology that was used in the very early, rudimentary stages of wastewater treatment, and they were called detriters. Now detriters were 25 square foot boxes. And I have 48 of them. And those 25 square foot boxes have a circle in the center. And the circle's like a cone. It looks like a funnel. So just imagine you have a square box, and you have a funnel that's fitting right perfectly inside. Well, the wastewater, after it gets screened and then pumped, go into these 48 detriters. And for 11 minutes, the water is resident in this detriter. The detriter has a mechanism, it's called a screed, that goes around. Just think of it as a slow-moving blender, very slow-moving blender. In the 11 minutes, all of the heavy inorganic solids have settled out, just like they would have done in a long longitudinal primary tank but we've saved so much space by these 25 square foot boxes. And it worked. It had worked back in the early 18, late 1800s, early 1900s, and it worked in today, in the, er- in the early 2000s when we put them in. So we saved an enormous amount of land by having the detriters instead of primary tanks. We had to convince the public, we had to convince the regulators, and sometimes we had to convince ourselves that this was going to be a viable way of treating wastewater. The next thing we did, is the aeration tanks. You might have heard me say that the water stays in the aeration tanks about four hours. Well, to have four hours worth of aeration tanks for a facility that's going to treat over 300 million gallons a day of dry weather flow and up to 800 million during wet weather, you need a lot of aeration tanks, much, much more than we could fit on the 53 acres. So what we did is we reduced the size of the aeration tanks from being a four hour detention time to about two and three quarter hours. Again, the engineers started looking at themselves. How is this gonna work? Are the microorganisms gonna have enough time to assimilate, eat food and grow and do the job that they're supposed to do? And then came the final settling tanks. The final settling tanks in the existing plant were over 200 feet long. That's a typical final tank. You want to give enough time for this particulate matter to settle out. And sometimes these long lengths of tanks are necessary to drop the solids, and then they're sweeped along the side in a collection system. But again, here we go. We only made them 160 feet. We cut off 40 feet. Once we decided that we had these sizes of the tanks, we were able to fit them into the footprint of the 52 acres that was required. Now, there's a lot of ancillary equipment and tunnels and piping systems and electrical systems, the digester systems, the thickener thickens, the powerhouse to generate. There's a lot of other stuff that goes in a treatment plant. But what I described to you are the major land mass was used for the treatment processes themselves, and we reduced them based on normal convention. We basically reduced this treatment plant to about two-thirds of what it would normally have been and we made it fit. So now the state was worried. The state said, if this doesn't work, you guys are gonna have to come back and do some chemical treatment. You're gonna have to add a lot of chemicals to make it work because all these things you're shortchanging may not work. Well, we said, okay, we agreed to that. It was almost like a Chinese menu. You're gonna pick some things from column A, some things from column B, and we left it open. But we had a consent order, remember? We had a schedule to meet. We had $5 billion worth of construction to get going. We had a timeline that said we had to be in secondary treatment by the year uh, 2006. And we made all those dates. So what happened was we started construction. And again, I can't leave out the community. We had those monthly meetings. Jimmy explained every month what was going on. We had a lot of engineers, a lot of city people. They all gave their spiel. But when it came down to the nitty gritty, everybody wanted to hear what I had to say and what I was doing and how my operators were going on and what happened last week, what was that noise, what was that smell, what was going on here and there, why are there so many trucks? So every month I kind of took my licks in a good way and I explained what we were doing and why we were doing. They didn't have to wait for the month after it happened. I was proactive in telling people about anything I would experience, would anticipate happening ahead of time. I would call up and let them know, listen, we're going to be doing this this week or that that week. And this way they had a heads up on what was going on and they appreciated it. But now we're going to find out about odor. I found a lot about odor and we devised a real mechanism for technically monitoring, calibrating, quantifying, and reporting back to the community. So I met a very interesting gentleman from Connecticut. His name was Ned Ostrychik. He is a Croatian gentleman, very, very large man with an extremely large forehead and nose. And he was going to tell me all about odor. So I said, oh my God, I have to sit here for this. But it wound up being one of the best relationships from a professional to this day I still have. So while we're doing the facility plan work, we had to start to quantify the odor. If we didn't measure it, if we didn't know how bad it was, then we wouldn't be able to measure the results of all the odor control systems that were going in, how successful that we were gonna be. We had a, way of, had a way of measuring it. So we went out and we took extensive odor issues, odor measurements, and we responded. I responded to many of your homes, knocking on doors, telling you with the instruments that I had in my hand and some of my coworkers, yes, we do smell what it is. We calibrated it, we gave you a, a sense of how intense it was on the Bunal end scale. We had a reading from one to five in intensity. We had all kinds of, f- about 15 different categorizations of the odor. And you folks that were involved with that, you know exactly what I'm talking about. For the rest of the people that are hearing this, we, we made odor a science. And we wanted to make sure that no one's complaint went unheard. Regardless if it was the exhaust from a bus or a diesel truck or some spill in the street from some other chemical, Whatever it was, we responded. There was a lot of laundromat complaints that it smelled like soap. There was a lot of burnt smells that were coming from restaurants that we responded to. We wanted to make sure that we weren't just trying to filter out sewage odor. We documented, calibrated, recorded, and responded to every single odor that everyone picked up. We had a special number, and we had a 311 connection that if you had an odor and you called either 311 or the special number, It went directly to me, all hours of the day and night, and we instituted a response team that went out with the instruments. We interviewed the people who were making the complaint. They wanted to be anonymous. That was okay. But if you gave me the benefit of giving your name and address, we showed up and we actually took the measurements at your front door when you were there. And by doing so, we were able to build a relationship with the folks that realized, hey, these people care. They're not just building something or allowing this plant to operate without having a good impact or at least a response to the community. I was not able to solve every odor issue. I was not able to give people complete satisfaction that the plant smelled and they were their summer times when they were having barbecues or outdoor affairs were being impacted. I knew that, but I did gain their confidence in the fact that it didn't go unlistened to. And we promised we were gonna meet an obligation when the construction was finished to make it an odor-free facility. So, As we continued through the 16 heavy years of construction, with traffic and cranes and deliveries and working nights and weekends, the plants started to gain notoriety. People started to see this new reborn plant come out of the ground and a lot of interest in what's going on in there, what's going on. So again, to the chagrin of some of my bosses, I said, we're gonna start having tours. I'm gonna start taking the Nick Mick people on a tour and I'm gonna open it up and invite the public, whoever wants to come. We're gonna give them some PPE, some hard hats, some vests, some eyewear, and I'm gonna show them the progress that's going on. And I became known as the tour guide. People knew about what was going on. People saw the dollars that they were investing in the city's infrastructure really being put at work. They could see the major capital progress You can see all of the industrial tools and the 1,000 tradespeople that were on the site for a a four-and-a-half-year period during our peak of construction in which we rented space in the abandoned property that Exxon left after we tore down their tanks. We rented that space for 350 parking spaces so the community wouldn't be inundated by the tradespeople coming in from all over the city to work on the project. They had an off-street parking so we weren't taking away from the community's parking areas, both the industrial, commercial areas that had to have people come in to work for them and also the residents, we didn't want to do that. So again, it was another benefit that we pushed for on the community's behalf to get through this project. So as the tours became very popular and as the plan started to reach some of the final stages, it was getting to the point where I was making the tour on every Tuesday, the second Tuesday of every month. And for years and years and years, I would have public, I would have residents come in from all parts of the city in Greenpoint. I would have school children show up during Earth Day on Take Your Children to Work Day. We would have academic people in college, universities at the Masters and the PhD level show up to see. So we were really using the plant as an educational tool, advancing the the fact that we were showing them that progress was being made, but also teaching. And I have hundreds and hundreds of letters from people who were extremely gratified by the time that we took to explain the system. Careers were formed, people's interests, environmental interests were formed, um, careers in wastewater treatment were formed, and um, a trust was formed. The transparency was The transparency was formed. So all of this together led to a very successful, and to me, a very popular person. I became extremely popular. It wasn't my intent. I was known when I went up to get a sandwich in the local deli, Jimmy, how's the plant doing? People recognized me. And then what happened on this one day, we were probably in the early 2007s, it was a Tuesday, excuse me, it was a Thursday, and I received a letter from a woman saying, next Tuesday, It was early part of February. It's Valentine's Day. What are you going to do different on your tour on Valentine's Day? And I hadn't thought about it. I didn't even realize that next Tuesday, which which was the second Tuesday of the month, the formal plant tour that's open to the public, everybody knew it. Just show up on Tuesday and Jimmy will give you the tour. Well, now it's Valentine's Day. So I wrote back to the woman. I said, in a quick response, everyone who shows up is going to get a kiss. And I ended it at that. Well, the woman ran a blog, and the blog was in Greenpoint, and it picked up, and the Daily News picked up on the blog, and the next day, which was a Friday, I got a call from Public Affairs that the Daily News is coming to interview me about the tour that I'm going to give on Valentine's Day of the following Tuesday. And I said, oh boy. So I wasn't too concerned about the tour. I've given the tour hundreds of times. I knew what I was going to say, but I was concerned about Valentine's Day. i got to do something different here, right? So... Believe it or not, the Daily News wrote the article. They took a picture of me up on the digester eggs. My arms were out out, uh, reached. I had a sign, um, Valentine's Day, and the background showed the New York City skyline. I mean, it was pretty enticing. So that Daily News article all of a sudden, I guess, you know, went viral. So over the Saturday and Sunday at my home in Park Slope Windsor Terrace, I sat down and gave 13 phone interviews with the New York Times, the LA Times, the BBC, the Discovery Channel, ABC, CBS, NBC, uh, PBS, and I couldn't believe it. So now, here it is, Monday morning. I show up at plant and I said, what are we gonna do? I think this is turning into something incredible. But what am I gonna do about these kisses? I said, you know what, I'm gonna call Hershey's and see if I can get some Hershey's kisses. So I picked up the phone and I called Hershey's. They happen to have headquarters in New York City. And I said, hi, my name is Jim Penn. I'm running the tour on Valentine's Day. And I promised everybody a kiss. And I was wondering, we know. They said, we know. We heard all about it. We read the news article. How many Hershey's Kisses do you want? And I said, wow, that's so nice of you. Maybe a couple of hundred. Well, they wound up sending me 3,000 of the very large Hershey's Kisses. They're about almost two inches high and they, showed, they gave me these beautiful display trays with Hershey in it. So here I had all these kisses. I said, what's gonna happen? So my department was worried. Normally I do the tour myself, I have 20, 30, 40 people. The uh, Visitor Center at Newtown Creek, which was built as part of an amenities package for the community, can hold 100 people in the classroom. That's where I start off every tour, giving a dissertation. Well, the morning when I showed up on Tuesday, There was an estimated 700 people lined up outside Greenpoint Avenue going up towards Manhattan Avenue. The police were there with barricades and there were truck after truck after truck from major news organization. I couldn't believe what had happened. It had gone viral. Luckily, I wore a jacket and a red tie for Valentine's Day and I was prepared to give my spiel. All of these folks from the news agencies wanted to be inside to hear my uh, dissertation on wastewater. So we wound up having 13 news cameras in the back of the audience where the visitors would sit. And I sat in the front and I stood and I gave my talk about wastewater treatment. So people were really interested. There was a lot of couples that came up to me during the tour and during the procedures as I was speaking, saying, can we get engaged now? Can you marry us? I mean, it was amazing. It was amazing. And I didn't realize, nor did the department realize it. So that day, I gave seven in a row, 45-minute speeches about the, about the history of the New York City treatment system, going back to the Dutch and the English in lower Manhattan with the privy and the well and the first reservoir at 42nd Street where the public library is and Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton's duel over the fact that Aaron Burr ran the New York City First Water System about five miles of hollowed out logs. And the money from the profit was used to make the first bank, which became to this day, J.P. Morgan Chase. And Alexander Hamilton at the time was a real federalist and he only wanted to have federal banks. So that led to the continuous disagreement that he had with Aaron Burr and ultimately the duel in New Jersey, Weehawken, that killed Alexander Hamilton. So, listen to this history. Isn't it amazing how everything is 365, it comes around? So, here I am in the center of this mass audience, a hundred people, asking me various things. And I gave the tour seven times that day. But let me tell you a little side story. Two things happened. The news organizations, every single one of those 13 news organizations, used that footage in the next several days and the night of the actual tour, the Tuesday of Valentine's Day, Jay Lento and Kimball, in their opening monologues, used my representation. Jay Leno's story went something like this. Hey, did you hear about that guy in Brooklyn that given tours at a sewage treatment plant? I like to take my girl to something more romantic like a cemetery. That was his little one-liner. So I got notoriety on two late night TV shows about the tour in Brooklyn and a sewage treatment plant on Valentine's Day. And here's the funniest story. My son went to Boston College and played rugby. One year he did a semester abroad in uh, Australia. He met up with the ruggers there and played rugby. And he had a friend called Aussie Matt, we called him. His name was Matthew. Well, about a day or so after the broadcast, I guess the BBC showed this in Australia, because Aussie Matt called up and called up my son Matthew and said, hey Matt, is that your father that I saw on TV giving the tour on Valentine's Day? And my son said, yep, that's my dad. He goes, yeah, it was all over Australia. So I guess everyone says they have that 15 minutes of fame. My 15 minutes came on Valentine's Day, 2006 or seven, on a Tuesday when I just said, I'm gonna give everybody a kiss and look what happened. So, tours were a big part of the organization, showing off the facility. We finally got around to finishing the plant, and we made a good promise because the odor control systems came through. And the Greenpoint community realized that engineering can be, the municipality can be held accountable, we can do good engineering and design, and we can make the odor go away. And we were very, very pleased that not only did we eliminate the odor, we gave a landmark to the community, a place where To this day, children show up. We have programs that teach about water and wastewater. We have an art and poetry contest that's held every year in which we portray the winners of those contests at Greenpoint. We show their artwork. I've had all kinds of engineers from around the world come and see the miracle of this curtailed treatment that we installed and built and made work with 94% removals now for the past 10 or 13 years. Every time the UN's in conference, uh, UN representatives are always asking to come. So one time during uh, the end days of my stages there, I had a hundred Chinese mayors that actually came in for the tour. Now, in China, there's many, uh, Daryl talking, uh, what do do you refer to it as? Um, um, There are very many different Chinese languages in, in the Chinese culture, but Mandarin is the universal language. Now, I had two Chinese guys that worked for me, and they both spoke Mandarin. So I was giving my spiel, and I had my two friends on either side of me, and they were both translating this information back into Mandarin. So every one of the audience members from China delegation understood what I was saying. So the diversity and the many different people that I've met and uh, over the years, and we've done a few movies. I don't know if you heard about the movies. But the producers and the directors they love the shapes and the architecture that was designed by james polshek and partners that architecture has has led to the desire by many movie theaters uh, movie companies to come in and make movies one of the best movies we made over a seven day period was salt with angelina jolie and we used many many components of the facility during that salt uh, movie film and uh, so There's been a lot of shows like The Good Wife, Elementary, um, I can't even remember them all. But a lot of shows have used the backdrop or the interior works of uh, Newtown Creek uh, in order to save sets and save money and save time. So New York City welcomes that. Uh, The the film industry is a big industry in New York City and they allow the filming as often as possible. It doesn't disrupt the process. We made it work and uh, Everyone was very grateful that we opened up our doors to the film industry because it just enhanced more of the economic engine that is New York City by allowing that to happen. So the plant wound up being very successful. The community was happy. We met our obligation. We met the Clean Water Act. The consent office of Bob Shop was very happy. And sometime in early '15, we had our last committee meeting with Nick Mick, and also we had our last construction progress meeting. And it was a sad day because we all knew a lot of accomplishment had taken place and we were very successful with the cooperation and the teamwork of all parties. So um, I miss Newtown Creek. I miss being there. I'm retired now five years. I left in 2017, uh, excuse me, 2014. I apologize. And um, I'm working in an engineering field with a firm called Arcadis that does water and wastewater work. And one of the things I'm working on right now, to be honest with you, is we're building protection systems against the future sandy in Lower Manhattan, up to 25th Street on both sides of the east and west. We're building walls or we're designing walls and pump stations that would be able to pump out of the next storm. So my career in wastewater hasn't stopped. Um, I'm trying to help with my excuse me with my practical experience, engineers on designing systems. But you know what I missed when I started telling you the story? I missed why treatment plants are where they are. I missed telling you why there were 14 treatment plants. I, wished, I missed telling you about the need for a treatment plant to be alongside the water. So let me go back. So the, the story in the 17 and 18 hundreds in New York Harbor were one of immense commerce. New York is a natural waterway. We have natural shipping locations that can take place along over the 500 miles of shoreline throughout the city. And that brought commerce and an economic engine into New York. But as New York was growing and growing and growing, and the population was actually pretty dirty. You may see some pictures in the early 1900s, late 1800s, where both sewage and garbage was strewn across the streets. We had no way of removing it. There was a health hazard. Things were going bad. People were getting sick. Just like third world countries, and here we were a modern country. We were in its infancy, but we're still a modern country. We were getting just as sick as the third world countries. We had to do something. So the original Department of Sanitation was under the auspices of the New York City Department of Health. And health engineers looked at it and said, the trash from the streets, from the households, and the sewage are the two big components. So they split it up. They had a solid waste committee come in. They had men in white jackets and suits. They purposely made sure that the people saw that the people collecting trash were doing it as a health benefit. Now, you're collecting trash, you're going to get pretty dirty. But these gentlemen wore pristine white pants and jackets and gloves to show that they're here for health reasons. And over a number of years, they collected and got rid of a lot of trash. Now the early days were not the smartest days. They put that trash on barges. They sent the barges out and they dumped the trash in the ocean. Okay, it was short sightings at that particular time. We've grown since then. But they were removing the trash from within the neighborhoods. The next thing was sewage. People were actually had sewage in the street. The chamber pot that people would use because most people in the early days had outhouses would be filled up. And and there's some pictures of women walking with parasols. And everyone thinks it's to keep the sun off them. It's not. It was to keep the sewage from somebody inappropriately throwing the chamber pot out and displacing that material onto the street. They say in the time of the middle to late 1800s, there was enough dung on the street from the amount of animals and horses that resided in the street to put two foot high in one year period, two foot of dung around the entire New York City area at the time. Something had to be done. So, as they were worrying and cleaning up the trash, there was a commission of people. One of the people, one of those commissioners was Robert Moses. Everyone knows Robert Moses, the master builder, who held so many positions in the mid-century that he was able to build the roads and the highways. But when he was a young engineer, he was one of the commissioners that sat on the sanitation commission of sewerage. That's what they said, the sanitation commission of sewerage. The first thing they did, They said, how bad is the sewerage system? How bad is the the problem? So they measured the waterways because the waterways at the time, in order to get rid of the material from the street, they built the first sewer systems to connect to the catch basins. There was no inline plumbing. Nothing was coming out of anybody's houses. So the catch basins on the corner and the pipes that fed the catch basins were the first and only sewers. So the sewage in the street and the dung from the horses and the cattle was being flushed down into the, into the catch basin and out into the receiving waters. So there was over 500 discharge points around the city where the sewers left their, their remains and, and let it go into the waterway. So the sea captains at the time, traveling in and out of New York, there's a problem with wooden boats, barnacle growth attaches itself to the hulls of the ships. The sea captains knew how polluted the New York City waters were. They said, we don't have to go to dry dock. We don't have to put the ship up and scrape those barnacles off because the barnacles would retard the flow against the water, the ship against the water, and it would slow it down. And in the early days of sail and some steam, you didn't want to slow them down. But the sea captains knew if you spent a few extra days in New York City, the waters were so dirty that the barnacle growth would die and fall off the hulls of the ships. Believe it or not, that was a known known message among sea captains. So when Robert Moses and the team of sewerage commissioners got involved, they started taking water samples and they started in 1904. And they started with 14 stations around the city. They measured four rudimentary components. Secchi dish transparency. It's a round disc, about four inches in diameter. You've seen it, it has black and white sections and you lower it down on a string and you lower it into the water until you can't see it anymore and you mark that and then you measure the depth in which the water uh, was visible. That's called Secchi transparency. Dissolved oxygen, there's a, a couple of chemicals you add into the water and you can extract out how much oxygen is water. It's called the Winkler method. And they were doing the Winkler method. How much oxygen was in the water? Very little. The next thing they did was pH. They were taking pH temperatures uh, readings to see how acidic or basic the water was. And then they did what they call turbidity. Now, those four samples that were taken from 1904 are still taken to this day, every single day, at 54 locations we have over 115 years of daily data that showed the terrible condition of the water to the pristine near pastoral conditions of today. So it's a a very rich history of real data. Once we knew how dirty the water was, the engineers started to decide about splitting up the New York City into drainage areas. Remember, in order to treat sewage, I told you that the pipes have to be pitched to a certain depth in order to convey the sewage from your homes into the closest point where it could be treated. Well, the engineers decided that the city could be split up into 18 different drainage areas. We wound up with 14. The reason the difference between the 18 and 14 is because in Staten Island, we were originally going to have six drainage areas, and we we only wound up having two, the Port Richmond and the Oakwood Beach. So Staten Island has two. They're all served by those two from the original uh, six that was there, that's why the ultimate number was not 18, it went down to 14 that it is today. Now, let's talk about the engineering aspect of this. When you site a treatment plant, you have to remember that the pitch of the pipe from the furthest distance in the area that's gonna be considered the watershed or the drainage area has to go down to a certain depth and the pump's capacities to suck or pull up are limited by physics. You can't put a pump down hundreds of feet. So we had to put the pumps down to the limit of their capacity. When we we started at that low point and then worked the piping back out to the highest point in the drainage area so it would still be covered underground and still be able to service your home or building, that that was the extent of the range that each of these drainage areas could come. So it was based on the physical aspects of being able to pump the sewage, and how much pitch you could put in the pipe and how far back that pitch could go, that was denoting a drainage area. And we wound up with 14 of them. Now, why are we near the water? Well, we're near the water because when the sewage is collected, the existing 500 pipes that were going out into the water already were at the shoreline. And we needed to intercept or intercept those pipes. So we put in a very large intercepting sewer. And the intercepting sewer happened right at the bulkhead line, right at the shoreline. So now we built this big pipe that intercepted the amount of pipes that were in the drainage area, a total of 500 points over 14 different drainage areas. And there were usually two interceptors in each of the drainage areas that picked up the pipes within that area. Then those pipes had to go to a treatment plant. And the treatment plant had to treat the water and then discharge it back into the East River, the Hudson River, the Harlem River, Jamaica Bay. So that's why we sited the plants along the water's edge. So we could capture the existing sewer pipes that were going out, collect the water in one location, treat the water, and then discharge the water back into the receiving water. So the locations were based on physics and engineering for both displacing the water back into the receiving waters and the limits of the capacity of the technology of the time for pumping the water from a deep pit up into the treatment facility. That's why the treatment plants are where they are today. Wow. Was there anything else that you'd like to say about Greenpoint? Well, we Greenpoint, over the years, again, I learned about 20 Polish words dealing with the public. I would say uh, for good morning. I would say for thank you. I would say to come here, when I was showing people things. And um, I learned the word remember? word that represents SHIT. So I had a great relationship and wonderful food so the butcher shops and the Polish cuisine that I feasted on for the 22 years that I was there. But I saw I saw Greenpoint change. I guess people would say it changed for the better, but I also saw a lot of industry be displaced. So back just about I'm going to say 95 or 96 there was a very very large change in the zoning rules. And the quiet community of Greenpoint, being the blue-collar neighborhood with the local industry where people could walk to work, was changing. Multi multi-story buildings were going up. The industry was leaving, converting those areas into more residential land as the zoning took place and declassified it from commercial to residential. I saw the neighborhood, uh, the Catholic churches, the community, the 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 real the real basic families get somewhat displaced by um, the new life that was being brought in. It's a good thing, it's a good thing. Look at all the thousands and thousands of new residents in Greenpoint. Some would say, yes, but it's crowded. It took away some of the uniqueness and quietness of the neighborhood. But in New York City, it seems to be an attraction from everyone across the world. And Greenpoint, Williamsburg, my neighborhood of Park Slope, and many, many other neighborhoods, just look at Manhattan how we just keep on building up and up to accommodate the more and more people that want to join this wonderful place we call New York City. So although it's hard for the residents, the older people that live there, sometimes they're disgusted or disappointed in the things, the way changes. Look at the faces of the young people, the families that they're growing up. And um, I think we have to embrace it. Change is always gonna happen. I know we don't like it, but it seems like there's a good mix. And uh, having the new activities that take place in Greenpoint, the culture, the diversity, the amount of restaurants, and the Newtown Creek Treatment Plan, drawing people in for the tours. Hey, what's going on over there? What do those things do? I think it all lends itself to a very positive positive atmosphere. And with the upcoming cleaning of the Newtown Creek Canal, the money that's gonna be spent, it's a super fun site. It's gonna be eventually cleaned. We're gonna have basically marinas there, People are even going to be more attracted to the waterfront along the Kent Avenue side. Of course, it's blossomed into an amazing amount of tens of thousands of new residents along the water of the East River on Kent Avenue. Same thing's going to happen within the tributary of the Newtown Creek Canal as it meanders from Greenpoint, Brooklyn, into Long Island City, into Maspeth and West Williamsburg, as they call it, East Williamsburg, the industrial sections. So I think there's a bright future for Greenpoint. It was my pleasure to be there. I hope I added some value. The friends that I met are great, and the memories I'll have forever. It was my pleasure um, adding my little piece of the story. Thank you. Thank you for your story.